0: There's just a lot of beautiful sites in Washington State that haven't been expressed, uh, you know, properly for sparkling wine. And that was really a goal for us, too, is to kind of map out the state and, and show folks sparkling can work here. Fuck
1: my home, tell me where you've been Pour cold, baby, yeah. Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Chabal, and in a minute, I chat with Christian Grieb from Trevery Cellars about Washington State's potential as a sparkling wine region. Now, if you, like me, love bubbles, and you're going to be in Seattle on May 30th, check out disgorgedwine.com for more information about a fun sparkling party I'll be throwing. My chat with Christian is coming up, but first, a thought. When was the last time you had sparkling wine? Unless you're me, the answer is probably not recently enough. Folks, you're missing the fuck out on some of the best drinking you can do. I'm not only talking about champagne. We've never had so many quality sparkling wine options on the market as we do now. As I talk about with Christian in today's interview, many Americans tend to treat sparkling wine as either a special occasion thing or an ingredient in a brunch cocktail. Yet as almost any sommelier out there will tell you, sparkling wine is perhaps the perfect pairing option for most meals. It has the high acid that makes it food-friendly and offers way more complexity and texture than many other high-acid wines. It's also just a lot of fucking fun. On its own, a bottle of sparkling wine can make your day feel more special, and that's a feeling we all crave. While of course, the grates from Champagne are one thing. You can find excellent sparkling wine from much of the rest of France, Italy, Spain, Germany, the United States, and a dozen other countries on lists and shops almost anywhere. So order some and put that Bubbles hashtag to work. Joining me today on Disgorged is Christian Grieb. He's the assistant winemaker at Traveri Cellars in Washington's Yakima Valley. Um, and Christian, thank you so much for your time.
0: Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. My
1: pleasure. So let's start with this. Uh, your dad's a winemaker. So was it uh, kind of just a given that you'd follow in his footsteps?
0: Yeah, you know, it's just one of those funny things where you grow up and the family history is just really steeped in in winemaking and viticulture and uh, it stretches back quite a long time back into the late 1800s in Germany and my great, great grandfather and then my grandfather and then my dad and then obviously now me. And it just, you know, initially I wasn't sure, you know, what I was going to be doing. Uh, You know, I went to school, uh, you know, kind of with the thought process of maybe I'd do something in the medical field or, something you know different but you know when you have a family history that long tugging at you you know um, you you really kind of just can't deny it at some point you know so around my third year at university studying chemistry and I enjoyed chemistry and seemed to fit me well but you know there's of course an artistic side to winemaking too and I that's just something you know you have to kind of weigh out for yourself but there's a lot of stuff kind of pulling me back to wine um, and some of that just being around it my whole life, you know, just being around it with my grandfather and, and then my father and, you know, all the people that they knew, it, it just really uh, made for just a wonderful, you know, kind of upbringing for me and kind of set the foundation of, you know, where to go uh, honestly uh, with my career. And I, I definitely just go head first at that point and then deny what was, you know, inherently sort of laid out for me before birth and <laughs> i didn't know that you know just kind of rolled into it
1: so was the desire to to start a winery something that was your dad's before you sort of had, headed down that path or was it when he saw that like okay christian's gonna follow follow my footsteps a little bit then it's like well let's make this uh, a thing
0: yeah you know my dad you know being originally from europe obviously uh, you know in germany winemaking is still very familial and it's very small, you know, uh, production and things like that. So, you know, when he came to the U.S. initially, it was with the with the German wine company. Uh, it was called Longuth Winery back in 1983 here in Washington State. Some of the old timers will remember that and speak fondly of it because there weren't that many wineries in the state. And, it, you know, it, when they left, he kind of stuck around. You know, he worked at a large supplier for St. Michelle for 20 years. And, you know, they were making a lot of a lot of wine. And so kind of when I got done with, you know, school and we decided that, you know, I I was going to do something, there was a conversation had of how we want to do that, you know, and I think our intention really was to go back to kind of those family roots, you know, kind of go back to smaller focus, you know, and he wanted to own his own brand again at some point and, and start his own winery, but you know, I think he also wanted it to have some sort of succession plan to it. You know, I don't think he just wanted to start it and then sell the brand off and, or, you know, or something like that later on in, in his life. I think he wanted it to have some meaning. Um, and that's just, I think, obviously kind of where he's from. And, and <laughs> you know, here's you know, family run wineries going three, 400 years strong, you know, in Europe. And, and it's not necessarily uncommon for that to happen and, So I think he wanted that kind of succession here too, you know. And so the fact that I decided to do wine was a big indication for him that, you know, he could then take that leap and start his own winery, even though maybe it wasn't at the forefront, you know, his whole winemaking career, but, um, it definitely was in his mind, you know, at some point he wanted to do something, but I think it developed a lot more meaning for him, uh, when I jumped on
1: board. Mm -hmm. Totally. I can... I can imagine that would have sort of given him uh, a certain faith that it would, yeah, carry on uh, past, at least the time he wanted to be making wine. He can Make you do that, and uh, and you can just uh, you can make the wine for him. Um, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. You know, you gotta have a cellar rat here or there, right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so
1: when you guys launched Traveri, and for those who aren't familiar, um, so Traveri makes exclusively sparkling wines, which is I think something obviously that you see in certain other parts of the world, but it's pretty uncommon here in the U.S. There's a, obviously some sort of uh, sparkling only houses, but it's it's a pretty rare thing. Was that the plan all along? Was it, was the plan to just hey, we're gonna focus on this this is what we want to do or or if not then how did that come about
0: yeah totally it's a good question and one we get asked a lot you know why sparkling and usually i get also the subsequent you know why washington and sparkling and i guess we could get into that later but i mean in regards to sparkling on its own uh, you know it's it it is something he's always really really enjoyed his mother drinks exclusively sparkling wine and So for him, you know, um, he kind of got brought up with, uh, you know, his mother enjoying champagne and German sparkling wines and um, kind of growing up around that a lot. And I think it just rubbed off on him uh, because when he went to school, so when he went to do his uh, winemaking degree in Germany, you can do, you know, well, you basically do a practical rotation like you would as a doctor, you know, and. So he got uh, to do two rotations, one at a still wine company uh, called Katoisehof, and they're still around in the Mosel Valley, and then one at a sparkling producer, which unfortunately is not around any longer, but um, that's the one that sort of stuck with him, that kind of gave him the bug of making bubbly, and when he came to the United States, he just sort of made it as a hobby um, every year, just because it it was a part of him, and it kind of stuck with him um, the whole time. And you know, that's sort of how we started. Was him sharing his, you know, <laughs> you know, odd lot stuff he made that year. And I don't mean odd lot because obviously he put some care into it. But um, you know, it just it it just was his own thing, not really high production or not really what you would consider a winery. You know, whatever forty or fifty cases a year was. You know, um, and I think so we call decided that, a hobby. that yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it still works sparkling wine. It's hard to say as a hobby, it's still work at some level. And, um, you know, I, so he, he just really enjoyed that. And so when we kind of got going, you know, we were talking to what's the vision, what's, what do we want to do? And, um, you know, while we could do Riesling for whatever else, you know, sparkling was the thing that he really enjoyed doing. And, uh, you know, who doesn't like sparkling? It's fun. It's, <laughs> you know, it's enjoyable. And that's something uh, I immediately adopted and went along with right away because I always loved his hobby sparkling, you know, and uh, it just sort of took off from there slowly, but surely, you know, it's kind of like the the little, um you know, idea that gets planted then it keeps growing and growing. And then when we finally decided, you know, we said, let's do sparkling. And um, there's just a lot of beautiful sites in Washington State that haven't been expressed, uh, you know, properly for sparkling wine. And that was really a goal for us, too, is to kind of map out the state and and show folks sparkling can work here.
1: Mm-hmm. So, that's a, you know, you bring up, a, I think, a really interesting point, which is that sparkling wine is typically um, stylistically associated with, you know, kind of cooler climates. You think champagne, you think, obviously, you know, Germany, mm-hmm. you think uh, I mean, may, there are exceptions, but but certainly the the a lot of the classic sites tend to have um, that element of you know kind of cooler climate to preserve acidity in the wines and all that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit of a misunderstanding that Eastern Washington is exclusively hot, um, but there's definitely no doubt that it's a generally speaking a warmer climate than say Champagne. So so how do you kind of how do you balance that? Is it is it in sort of site selection where you find cooler sites or varietal choice, or or, or how do you kind of set about making really great sparkling wine in a slightly different climate than uh, you know people might expect?
0: Sure, absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I think I think it's you know, first off, it's all perception, right? You know, if you drive over to the pass, the Cascade Mountain Pass, and you come into Eastern Washington, you're automatically thinking desert, arid, dry, hot. And while it does get nice and warm in the summer, you know, in general, you know, running thirty-year averages and stuff, there are sites that aren't a whole lot warmer than Willamette Valley per se. You know, and and so it's it's hard for people, I think, to automatically think that because when you're in the Willamette Valley, there's obviously trees and greenery and the rainfall is a lot higher, but it doesn't necessarily mean always that the heat is a lot higher. And but that helps us a lot. So one for one instance, we have really good disease control, you know, disease pressures and pest pressures are really low in, in eastern Washington. And that's because we just don't get a lot of rainfall. So it makes for really healthy fruit to work with, first of all. Second of all, I think you kind of touched on a little bit. Site selection is important. You know, you can't just ignore it. You know, of course, I'm not going to be making a sparkling wine from Red Mountain, you know, nor <laughs> would I consider something like, well, Waluk Slope sparkling. You know, I mean, these are very powerful red wine driven sites, you know, that are very warm. Uh, but that being said, the Yakima Valley, you know, if I look at the Yakima Valley as a whole, it's predominantly planted in white grapes, and that's for a reason. It's because we have some really beautiful cold climate sites. We have some stuff that's got a little elevation on it. Um, you know, and the newest AVA that we're playing with a lot and we really are excited about is stuff that's coming from Natchez Heights. Uh, and and so I think, you know, initially off the cuff, you know, you look at eastern Washington and say, you know, no, no way does sparkling work there. Um, but when you really start digging into it and you get your fingers into it, there's a lot of beautiful sites. And then, you know, of course, um, fruit and varieties are very important too, you know, and, and you don't want to, you know, be picking, you know, Chardonnay from a hot site or, you know, uh, you know for example like frost you know we have a lot of frost issues in the spring here in eastern washington so i likely wouldn't be planting chardonnay there because it you know is one of the first ones to kind of break you know bud and come out and try to grow you know and so i would probably want to be looking for something like pinot on those sites that are a little later to bud and bloom and that kind of thing that buys us a little more time so you know while it is a little warmer and you're definitely correct on that um i there are sites that i wouldn't you know typify as being hot in eastern washington that are well suited for sparkling wines and i think it just shows it by looking at the you know where we're located in the yakima valley being predominantly white grapes you know that kind of indicates okay that ava might be cooler on a whole though there could be some nice warm pockets and we've heard of those you know nice sites too that that in yakima valley that have some warmth to them you know and and produce some nice reds but There's also some stuff on 1,300-foot elevation or more that is a little cooler and, you know, might not get Cabernet quite ripe the way you would want it or Merlot quite ripe or Syrah quite ripe, you know. So you kind of play that game, you know, and the site selection is really important. Knowing the sites is important too, you know, walking them and getting a feel for them throughout the year.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's also uh, probably a process of – you know, going through a number of vintages and each year you kind of learn a little bit more about about how a site will behave. And even though you know Eastern Washington is and you know, maybe Yakima Valley is considered a little bit more predictable year to year than the Willamette or a few other places, it's definitely you know the last few years have shown that there's plenty of variation to be found. So is it just a, a case where like each year you're kind of like, okay, we we get a better sense for what what this what these plantings are going to do?
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, less variation it, it keeps it spicy and different and things new. You know. But uh, like you said, you know, nothing, nothing is the same. So yeah, you really do kind of have to delve into it a little bit. And I I find, you know, one of the biggest resources is just my, obviously my father being here for, you know, over 30 years, he's done 33 harvests in the state. So he has a fairly decent idea of, hey, this works or this doesn't, you know, just off the cuff, you already know a few things that are just not going to work. And kind of, I jokingly mentioned it earlier, but it's kind of a, you know, uh, I don't want to say it, but no duh, Sherlock kind of thing, you know, like uh, um, y- y- you go out to Red Mountain, you're likely not going to be planning, you know, Chardonnay, you know, that might not be the right idea. But, you know, when you're picking some of these cooler sites, I agree with you in, in the sense that over time, you start developing more of an idea. Okay, this site likes to do this, this site likes to do that. And then you can kind of weed that out. And, and the fact that we're on our eighth or ninth vintage is helpful. But in addition to having my dad be here in the state for so long, he already knows some of these sites and how they react. So we've been able to be ahead of the curve a little bit. Um, But when we start picking up a, you know, maybe a new site, something is interesting to us, you know, uh, we do some kind of fun different wine club wines, you know, um, we do a sparkling Gewurztraminer, for example, you know, that's stuff we've kind of had to tease out a little bit and decide, okay, what's just warm enough, you know, where you want some of those uh, tropical fruit characteristics out of Gewurztraminer, but, you know, where's it also cool enough that, you know, we're not losing all the acid, for example, you know, and so that, that is something you pick out over time and, and that is an important piece of the puzzle for sure.
1: So speaking of time, it seems like the sort of element of time in, in sparkling winemaking is, I think, often underappreciated. And, and I think you guys at Traveria are kind of doing an interesting job of playing with um, sort of, I guess, uh, Lee's aging with your wines. How do you kind of strike the balance between, um, you know, maybe wanting to make a, a sort of a more fresher approachable kind of i guess lighter is maybe the way to describe it style of sparkling wine against um you know wanted to also make and i know you've you're kind of close to releasing some of your first uh, more extended mm-hmm. aged uh sparkling wines how do you kind of strike that balance and is and is that decision to to kind of continue with an extended tirage is that more about what the wine is doing in bottle is it about um you know again maybe talking about the sites that you're familiar with knowing that maybe those the the wine from that site is better suited for longer aging like how do you kind of make those decisions
0: totally yeah uh, you know i think a lot of it can be told already in the base cuvee, um and i you know, when we talked last time when you were at the winery, I kind of mentioned that sometimes you don't know how these things will turn out. You sort of take your best educated guess, you know, <laughs> and and that's wine sometimes, you know, um, that's part of the artistic side of it too, is, is, you know, you, you put in these layers and these elements and you're hoping that the output comes out as X, Y, Z. And typically it does, but that doesn't always mean it will. And so for us, you know, the, the, kind of more powerful, longer age, sparkling wines, you know, we kind of have to set ourselves up for the best success possible. So for us, that means we really have to be looking at the, the grand scheme of things. Okay. What site is coming in? Okay. How did that cuvee baseline work out? Okay. From the cuvee base wine into, into garage, how's it doing after a couple of years? Cause you know, most of our core tier is two year age. It's a little lighter. Like you said, a little fresher. Um, and, and is it, is it still really youthful? You know, at that point, can we keep going? Can we keep pushing it? Um, you know, because the last thing you want to do is just keep stuff on yeast that is not going to develop correctly, you know? Um, but I would say if you're putting in your best educated guesses, and I will knock on some wood that we haven't had, you know, an instance yet where I've said like, oh, that can't go longer, you know? Um. Because if you're putting in a lot of good inputs, I think you'll end up getting a good output at the end. And that's kind of where we're at at the point of, you know, hey, let's let's measure this out correctly. Let's pick this nice, cool site here. Let's get this really good cuvee here. And if I'm making a blend or, you know, my dad and I are making blends, then we're looking at, okay, what are the layers in this blend? And do we think that'll develop well? And then when it's developing, of course, that's the final sort of um Measure you have before you kind of let it go for five years or six years, you know. <laughs> and so, so you just kind of have to. After a couple of years go, yeah, it's definitely got the legs. Or you know, no way in hell, you know, abort or something. And we haven't had to abort yet. So, like I said, oh, find me some wood to knock on or something because it, it's been it's been pretty uh, good so far. But yeah, I mean, you just have to find your best inputs. And I think it's just like winemaking. You know, you're of course not going to pick the the worst site that you have in your book uh, and hope that that's going to become your reserve to your wine. You know, uh, you're, you're obviously going to pick the best vineyard sites and the best cuvées you can to try to get the best output you can. And, and it's no different in sparkling wine. You know, even even though we're talking about white wines, they're, they're, I find them unbelievably complex and layered, especially when you're starting to age, you know, you're, you're having to, consider there's no tannin and how these things will age you know and and that adds a different element into it so acidity is also really key um to making sure you have something that can go some distance uh and you know if it's got no acid it's not it's not going to last basically you know um but then that of course translates back to site so you kind of get the circular pattern i'm getting at good inputs can equal good outputs and you know you're hoping everything in between kind of does the trick for you you know and you don't get caught with something by surprise
1: Mm -hmm. so is there a like a almost like a spatial consideration when it comes to to sort of making um you know sort of extended tirage sparkling wines where literally you have like lots of bottles that are aging and you know i think people think about like wineries you know okay the the you know white wine they pick the grapes they press them they ferment them they maybe age them for a little while depending on what it is maybe you know maybe it's in bottle for a little while maybe it's in barrel for a year but like you know maybe you're turning the entire you know, kind of turning over all your wine in a year or two and and with sparkling uh, some cases that's probably true but even i think you know, you guys i don't think do anything that's less than maybe two years right uh, so you end right, up with kind right. of uh, like this you've got like number of vintages on site is it just like create a weird demand for space
0: Uh, yes that's a good yeah totally when we so we started in a small warehouse in downtown yakima and uh you know originally when we started the business we kind of had no expectations for for what it would do you know and and that was because it's a new category for the state and uh you know well, not necessarily a new category. Let me put it this way: it's a new concept that a winery would only do sparkling, kind of like you were, you know, discussing earlier. And so when we, <laughs> when we, you know, kind of took this at, at the at the forefront, it was sort of like, okay, you know, we have to be the crystal ball seer too. You know, what's going to happen this year? What's going to happen next year? And like you said, you kind of start piling up some vintages you know so when we did our first year you know um which was 2007 when we made some wine for a 2009 release you know it's kind of okay this first year we'd like to sell this much and the second year we'd like to sell this much and luckily we didn't oversell which (laughs) really could have you know put us in a pickle um but we went a little long on a couple couple uh of our first vintages saying like hopefully you know um this will this will take but you know as you grow, you know, um, when you start getting, you know, we're about 15,000 cases large now. So the, the, the issue is when you grow and you start getting bigger, you know, how do you foresee what I'm going to be doing in two years when I'm selling 15,000 cases, you know, is it 30 and likely not right. You know, cause you're already reached a decent growth curve at that point, you know, so, but it just kind of adds kind of some fun things to it. And we went well out through that first facility, we moved up to this gorgeous facility. It used to be the Ferner State Lands building, and there's with some great warehouses. And I remember my dad and I walking into it, looking at it, and we said, wow, if we ever filled this place, you know, that would be 30 years down the road, you know, and, well, it's full. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, <laughs> there's always kind of fun challenges like that where you just get caught by surprise and, you know, you're just hoping things work out. And, and they do in, in general in the long run, but you just have to be diligent about you know, your space and, and how you're using using things. And um, it, it's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge because instead of laying a barrel down and I can stack them 10 high and, you know, those hold 60 gallons a barrel and that kind of thing, you know, right now I've, you know, I'm stacking bins that are full of bottles and, you know, I'm only fitting 40 cases in a bin and I can only go five high, you know, so that mm-hmm. I can't fit quite as much volume. And, into the same space, so it definitely creates some concerns. Um, but you know, nothing, nothing to shy us away from <laughs> from doing the project. But it, you know, it definitely does create issues.
1: Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the wine itself, um, and the and sort of uh, what you guys do. You mentioned uh, the sparkling Gewürztraminer, which is uh, definitely um, a little bit more unusual. You do uh, sparkling Riesling, Müller um and then you know more kind of conventional. Um, i guess what you consider kind of conventional sparkling wine grapes uh if you had to kind right. of compare the the style um or the and maybe this is an impossible question but like uh to like a more established sparkling wine uh, region or whatever what, what do you look at it and say like you know we're doing our, our wines are kind of comparable to or or similar in style to x
0: yeah that's a good question i i feel like they sort of lie in between some things um they're definitely targeted lower alcohols, so nothing really exceeds twelve percent. Um and, and in that regard I would say it's kind of got an old world flair, you know, um, meant meant to be enjoyed, um and they're they're definitely you know, lively and, and delicate. Um, but I also they are from the new world. You know, the wine the wines and and the plants we're getting the big fruit from are in different soils than the old world. So I, I feel like they do carry at some level, a little bit of both, if I'm going to look domestically, obviously I'd say California is a fairly good measure you know of you know okay, what are sparkling wines tasting like out of california and and I would venture to say it's it's probably not you know a whole lot um, different you know um in that regard and i don't I don't mean to say that there's no differentiation, there's a lot, but I just mean in the sense that you know. You're targeting certain things, obviously, and, and some of the sparkling houses are owned by French producers, so they kind of have that old-world flair, but they're made with new-world fruits. They carry their own their own sort of zing to them, and, and it's the same thing here in Washington. So to kind of expand on that, you know, they they have their own unique identity. I don't think you would have a blanc-de-blanc blanc from Washington State that would ever taste anything similar to a Blanc de Blanc out of California, which I would agree, then they wouldn't taste anything similar to a Champagne region and that Champagne region wouldn't taste anything similar to Cava or something like that, for example, or German sparkling wines. You know, so I think there's just the uniqueness of place in Washington too that contributes to the wines, even though we're targeting styles. Um, that's the hardest, if I could say, um, stigma for me to sell the wines is convincing people it's its its own Thing you know, it's a standalone thing. You can't think of Krug, or you can't think of you know Perrier Jouet, or or you can't think of you know Schramsberg or something like that. There are similarities sometimes, but it's its own place. It's its own sense of place, and they have to be judged by that too. You know what's going on in Washington, and you know what are the Chardonnays like in Washington, or what are the Gewürztraminers like, or that kind of thing. And then kind of using that as a measuring stick a little more than I would say you know, what necessarily is champagne like or what necessarily is Cava like? And, you know, um, that's always a tough question for me to answer because I always say they're uniquely Washington, but made uniquely old world, you know, mm-hmm. Being, uh, ha- having a German winemaker educated classically in sparkling winemaking in Europe. They, of course, have, you know, a cooler German climate. So the Mosul's, you know, obviously really cool climate. So it's a little bit like champagne, you know, so they have a little bit more, you know, made in that style feel, but then of course it's from Washington. So (laughs) it's just really, it's when I think about it, it's really hard to explain, but if if I put it in those terms, it kind of at least keys people into how I think about them, you know, being a sort of standalone category. And I think that's because we're on the frontier, the the beginnings of Washington sparkling, and we don't have a lot necessarily to measure yet, you know, and, and we haven't played a ton with a bunch of different sites. So, it's It's kind of its own category that we're developing a little bit and trying to tease out and 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 find some of these amazing sites and with us being only seven to nine years old, well nine years old but seven to the public, you know it it's it's a young endeavor you know we're only doing this sort of for ten years basically and and the snapshot of the history of wine in the world that's nothing you know mm-hmm. so we haven't had a lot of vintages, you know necessarily for me to say this. This absolutely is like Champagne, that site right here. This site right here is absolutely like Cava, you know, or this site right here is absolutely like German winemaking. I would say in general, I always call it like the new world and old world book. You'll find our Blanc de Blancs and our Blanc de Noirs and our Brut Prestige. They kind of have more of, and we have a Pinot Meunier and a few other things that do taste a little more minerally, a little earthier, a little more old world. And then we, of course, have what I call our kind of new world book. We do some fun stuff, Syrah, Riesling, muller Some of that's German influence too, but we kind of let those be playful and fun and kind of new world snapshot, you know, so something different, so to speak.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like one of the challenges I face in selling sparkling wine to people is that they kind of tend to view it as either celebratory and therefore really, really special or like something you put orange juice in on a Sunday morning. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I would say that um, not that not that you would uh, deny either of those as po- as uh, applications for your wine, but I think you know that for the most of it, it fits somewhere in between those two poles. Um, how do you kind of have that conversation with people who come to the winery, or how does your you know your staff or whatever talk to people about kind of uh, making these wines, which are you know for the most part relatively um, you know pretty reasonably priced? I think most everything retails out of the winery for less than twenty dollars, or at least the bulk of the wine does. Um, how do you kind of place that in people's like drinking um i don't know they their like drinking repertoire
0: totally yeah I, that's you know it's always a uh, changing the conversation is as what i like to use in this instance a lot that's because people come in and you know i think there's wine drinkers kind of crack me up because and, and i don't mean that in a, in a, <laughs> a bad way but there's certain types, you know, like, uh, you're probably a wine type. You like to drink certain wines. I like to drink certain wines, but, uh, you know, I think what I try to get people to do is not be so set all the time in their, in their, um, view of what sparkling is, you know? And so I, I try to pull them out of the box a little bit, you know? So when, when do you drink sparkling wine? And oftentimes we hear, you know, Oh, we had it at somebody's celebration or something. And then I always kind of like to, flip the script a little bit, you know, I I tell people, I say, well, you know, you're celebrating things, why don't you drink it because you're alive? You made it, it's a (laughs) Tuesday, you know, and, and you made it through the day and it's, it's 5 p.m. and you came home and you've had a real crap day at work and you open the fridge and there's a bottle of bubbly waiting for you. I've seldom heard somebody say, I'm in a crappier mood now that I opened the fridge and there's some bubbles waiting for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, very seldom do I hear that, that claim. And so I try to get people to think about sparkling a little bit different. We we did a really poor job in, in the United States of marketing it as a – and I, I mean this earnestly. You know, the, the forefathers of selling sparkling wine here were looking for a way to sell it. And I think initially it just kind of came out as, you know, oh, well, what wine is used for celebrations? Oh, none of them yet. Why don't we pick sparkling? There's tons of celebrations. People have birthdays. They have – you know, uh you know, graduation ceremonies. You know, so the original thought was not, in, you know, completely off base or illogical, but I would say, you know, it set up a really tough time for us later on, folks, of saying, you know, in, in other parts of the world, there's no excuse to not drink it. You know, it's not like, well, I'm going to save the bubbly for somebody's birthday. You know, <laughs> it's, it's always being used for for fun things. So we just try to loosen that conversation up for a little bit people. I think also producing a few different wines in the book helps. You know, I mean, I think people are really intimidated um, when they don't know the term blanc de blanc. Mm -hmm. And so if they see Riesling or Gewurz or Rosé, for example, it's a nice way to get the conversation started. And then we can kind of graduate them into a few other things, you know, get them into the more serious wines or the drier wines. And we find that happens a lot as people come in and they start with like the Gewurztraminer or they start with the Riesling. And before I know it, they're buying cases of Blanc de Noir for their house, you know, okay. and, and they're doing it at a nightly basis. So I think one is being accessible. Like you said, we're 20 and under, and I couldn't come in at $50. People would say I'm crazy. I can get grower champagne at that price. Um, well, starting to at least, you know, and, and um, I couldn't, could come in at a hundred or anything like that. I had to, I had to justify getting people to pick up a bottle of Washington sparkling. Cause it'd be senile if I came out of the gates and said it's $60. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I probably would have had a lot of head shakers right from the start, you know, like you can't demand that unless there's, you know, demand in the market for it. So just trying to make people think about it differently. And then you kind of mentioned earlier, we'll have a reserved tier and that'll be for maybe the more serious sparkling drinkers. And some of those, folks that we've developed into serious sparkling wine drinkers to try something different that's a little more powerful, you know, a little longer aged, you know, sometimes a little even barrel ferment in it, you know, um, that adds a little bit more girth and, and breadth to the palate, you know. And so it's kind of just slowly baby steps for people kind of.
1: Yeah, well, and it seems like you know too. You can kind of have this uh, understanding that sparkling wine is a bit a really broad category, and that you know there's nothing wrong with celebrating with sparkling wine and also drinking it on a Tuesday night. Like they're not they're not mutually exclusive. Right, right. My my wife is a uh, we we are uh, we we have a, a strict rule in the house that there must be emergency bubbles at all times, um, because you know <laughs> as she says, you have, never right? know when an emergency might happen and require
0: sparkling well, right. wine. It could be Tuesday night, like we just said, right? You know, <laughs> there are a
1: surprisingly high number of midweek night uh, emergencies. So that's right. So getting getting people kind of around the the idea of sparkling wine as a as a regular thing is obviously kind of one of the challenges. And like you said, um, you know, just kind of also for people who are maybe a little bit more wine knowledgeable, kind of saying like Washington can make really good sparkling wine is also maybe a little bit of a challenge. Is there any other kind of challenge that comes along as just being a winery that focuses solely on making sparkling wine? And, and maybe it's not, maybe it's a market facing problem or maybe it's just like the, there are, I, I think like, you know, you see a lot of people, a lot of wineries, especially new world wineries that make a wide range of styles. And I always kind of assume some of that might be just like winemaker boredom. And some of it may be like, Hey, we want to have a, a, you know, enough different options so that anyone who comes into the winery or whatever it's like oh you like red wine got red wine you like white wine you got we got white wine you like rosé we got rosé you like sparkling wine we got sparkling wine and obviously there aren't a lot of wineries that do all of those things but being a a, a sparkling only house do you come across any kind of challenges where people are just like oh I don't like sparkling wine and you're kind of like "Uh, that's unfortunate
0: (laughs) yeah I mean that's that's definitely happened a few times in, in, in the past in the tasting room and usually I try to get people to at least try it because I find nine times out of 10, you do still get one, you know, about 10 to 15% that will say, no, it's still not my thing. But nine times out of 10, I I can get somebody into something that's bubbly and they just don't realize it yet. They haven't either had enough experience. I think it's unfortunate because we all have our, you know, college year experiences where we're, you know, down in bottles of cooks or Andre's and then people end up with a headache or something like that, you know, And then I hear a lot like, well, sparkling wine gives me a headache. And then I usually have to, um, you know, sort of walk that back. Well, what, what kind of sparkling wine gives you a headache, you know, like champagne or like, you know, artificially gassed cooks or something like that, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't know how people, uh, you know, have been drinking their sparkling wine, but I think they've just haven't had a lot of experiences with, you know, well-made sparkling wine. And so, I guess I'm tooting my own horn and I try not to because I try to be fairly humble about these things. But I try to get people into thinking about, you know, if I'm going to buy sparkling, it's the same way I would buy a wine. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily want always to be buying, you know, stuff that's, you know, not the greatest. You know, I, I want to buy something that I can treat myself to a little bit. And, and that in that sense, that's kind of one of the challenges we face. You know, in that regard is is getting people to think about it differently. it's It's not the five ninety nine bubble, you know um, it, it is a little more expensive. But, you know it's ten dollars more than something like that. and um, that's okay. I tell people there's ten dollars more of care that went into it. Your dollars now are going into the farm, you know where the where the the grapes are you know cared for at a little higher standard. They're going into the winery where we're caring for those practices more. You know and so that kind of thing you know kind of translates backwards, so getting people thinking about sparkling not sometimes always is you know the the well bubble you know so to speak that they've they've gotten the headache off of, and I just tell them you get a headache because it's you know I mean I won't say certain brands get headaches I mean I sort of did, but I won't <laughs> say it's necessarily that, but it just is sometimes not great wine gives you bad headache, you know, and uh, that's just how it goes yeah, you well- know
1: and it's a little bit like the, the people like I knew who drank like the cheapest gin or tequila in college and now many years later are like, oh, I don't drink gin or I don't drink tequila. And I'm like, well, you drank the thing that was like $3 a shot, so maybe it's not shocking totally. that it wasn't very good.
0: And I think that's a perfect analogy is, you know, we've all, I've, I don't know how many of my friends have, well, I, ended, I don't know how many times I've ended a night poorly off of a well shot of tequila. And it's like, yeah, because you got the well shot of tequila, you know, but like you didn't get the really nice tequila or something like that, you know, and and you hit it spot on, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not like a fruit punch thing here that, you know, we're making. And so I try to get people to think about it a little differently, you know, in that regard of. You know, I mean, we've all been there. We've all tried some bad wines and um, bad beverage, but it's okay. You know, it doesn't mean that all of them are like that. You know, for you sure. just kind of have to educate, you know, uh, more than anything. Well, I, I guess th- education in a nutshell, right? If I were to answer yeah. that question short, short version, <laughs> education. Well, the nice thing <laughs> is
1: education in, in our line of work is euphemism for here, try this. Which is the best kind of education?
0: Yeah. yeah, that's right. Just drink and tell me later. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> drink this. Shut
1: up for a minute. Think about it. We'll talk in a sec.
0: That's right. Uh, that's right. Mull it over. <laughs> so, so
1: uh, just one last question for you, because I know you're a busy guy and you got lots of uh, of winemaking to get back to. But uh, if you sure. if you had to look at a, a varietal out there um, that you're not currently working with that you would like to, is there anything that you are you're kind of interested in exploring, or are you be pretty content with the roster of uh, of uh, varietals you're working with now?
0: Absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't know if there will be a huge expansion off the varieties we're working with. That being said, there's, there's one variety, and it's sparsely grown at best, if, if at all in the state, is Pinot Blanc. And we've just put in a little, a little bit here at the winery um, on our property, about five to seven rows of Pinot Blanc. And it's just a wine that, you know, it's a mutation of Pinot Noir. So as a white wine, it, it's it's surprisingly crisp and refreshing, but it's basically Pinot Noir whose skins have just turned white, you know, and it makes this really interesting sparkling. And they do a lot of it in Alsace, and they do a lot of it in the Moselle Valley, where my dad's from. And so there's a little bit of familiarity, you know, um, with my dad, too, in Pinot Blanc, that we want to explore a little bit. So, I mean, if I were to say there's one variety that we kind of want to have – make, and we've been chomping at the bit to make, is, is, is definitely Pinot you know, Blanc. Um, coming by it has been tough, um, but, you know, when it gets tough, then you just try to put some of your own in. <laughs> so so that's, that's, the, that's what we're going to try to experiment with a little bit. Um, I, and if I were to pick one just because I think it'd be fun, would be Albarino. I really think that would be a really fun bubble. It's it's already on its own a good shellfish wine if it's made dry, um really crisp you know a lot of flavor to it and so it could be another one that's just fun you know we really haven't experimented with um a lot of let's say non-german and non-french varieties so that could be one that would be really fun for us to try is a really crisp white you know that that could do well in a bubble
1: Excellent. Cool. Well, I look forward to, to checking those out and, uh, and of course, getting to try some of the, the reserve wines when they are released and drinking the other stuff on uh, whenever whenever those emergency bubble situations uh, occur.
0: Love it. Happy to help. Happy to help <laughs> get you those emergency bubbles. <laughs> Excellent. Christian,
1: thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it, and uh, uh, thanks again. All right. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Christian Greeb, assistant winemaker at Traveri Cellars, for joining me on Discorged. You can find Traveri's Wines online at traverisellers.com or on social media at Treveri As for me, I'm online at Disgourged Wine, on Twitter at Ball, or on Instagram at Disgourged Wine. Thanks so much for listening to Disgourged, and cheers.